0: passage. Reading from the eighth chapter of the book of Revelation, verses one through five. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with all the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. As you can see, we're continuing our ongoing study in the New Testament book of Revelation, the Bible's final book. And this morning we actually encounter uh, a passage that continues the ongoing message of Revelation. We've entitled this whole series Checkmate, uh, because that's a fitting picture. Uh, If you have any familiar at all with the game of chess, which I have only very small... But you can make moves in the game of chess that essentially ensure your victory several moves before the game is actually over. The game still goes on for a little while, even though it's already been won. That's a fitting depiction of what the book of Revelation is trying to tell Christians. We are engaged in a struggle... That has already been won, but the game is still going on, and we need to live out our lives in the midst of this struggle between God and the gospel on the one hand and Satan and those who oppose the gospel on the other hand, which Christians are caught up in the middle of. We engage in that struggle in the sure knowledge that God has already won the victory. We anchor ourselves in his sovereignty. Now, today's passage kind of brings us to the climactic end of the series of of things that we've been talking about for just the last couple of chapters, these series of seven uh, seal judgments, as it were. Uh, This is John's vision that he received in the first century from God of judgments that God sends on the earth pictured by the breaking of seven wax seals that were sealing up the scroll of God's purposes. So this is all the, the kind of symbolic imagery that we've seen in the book of Revelation up until now. And we've gotten through six of those seven seals today. Today we arrive at the seventh And then we also, later in chapter 8, before we're done this morning, we will introduce a new series of seven judgments that has many parallels to the first series of seven, and so we'll see that. We're going to read the second half of the the scripture in just a few minutes when we get there. So we've broken up the reading into two parts this morning, because this is a real kind of junction, as it were, uh, between the two. The seventh seal is broken, and and as we just read, this is the the image that John uh, sees, Uh, Three things happen sort of fairly quickly within the midst of this image. First, it says, when the seventh seal is broken, there is silence in heaven for half an hour. So what we're going to do this morning is what we typically do. We're going to kind of look at the book, the, the text of Revelation, and we'll have a few comments that are designed to help us try to understand what he's seeing and what he's describing. And then we will move from understanding it to what are the implications of it? What are we intended by God to take away from this book now as modern day Christians, it's kind of where we're headed this morning. So, first of all, what does John see? He sees the seventh seal broken, and then he says, interestingly enough, there is silence in heaven for the span of about a half an hour. Now, whatever else we make of this, its overall purpose is fairly clear. This is a dramatic pause. This is a period of breathless anticipation in heaven for what's about to come next—the final climactic event of all of this series of things that have been happening up to this point. I don't know if you've ever been in a public place where there is absolute silence, where there is normally lots of noise and activity. It is a weird experience. Five seconds of silence in a large public place can feel like a half an hour. You know what I'm talking about? My wife and I sometimes enjoy going to uh, public music concerts uh, like the Organ Symphony or something. We've been to several of those, and and you kind of learn when you go to a symphony concert that there's actually not only certain things and, and customs that the orchestra follows, but there's like certain things you're supposed to do and not do as an audience member. You know, you can be a good symphony audience member and a bad one. Here's one of the rules I learned about being a good symphony member if you're listening to a big, long piece of music that sometimes has several movements, you know, three or four movements, there will often be a little pause between each movement, just just a few seconds long, typically, where everybody kind of you know, reshuffles themselves, and it's quiet, and then the conductor raises his baton, and off they go into the next movement. Well, here's the rule. You're not supposed to clap in between movements. It's a big no-no, right, if you're going to the symphony. So what you get, you're only supposed to reserve your applause until the end, until the whole thing is over, which is really kind of odd if you're listening to a piece of music you're not familiar with. So you're not exactly sure when the end is, And so you're like, okay, there's this, the orchestra is playing, and you may have a couple thousand people in the room, if you've ever been to the Arlene Schnitzer concert hall downtown, just this beautiful, huge room, and, and the music is just filling the room, especially if they're playing a piece that's got a lot of energy, and it's loud, and the drums are banging, and the cymbals are clashing, and the violinists are, you know, gyrating back and forth with their little bows, and it's just this huge climactic moment, and then it ends. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And you're like, the sound clears, and you're like, ah, am I supposed to clap? Am I, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody else to do something. You know, it, it, it creates this intense kind of tension. I probably just repeated myself, but it's like this, this huge tension. It, 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 what's supposed to happen is, is some kind of resolution coming next. The silence is intense. I think that's the idea of what's being pictured here in heaven. It's worth noting, what was the silence? What was making the noise before? John's had these visions of heaven, and they're pretty noisy visions, and we've seen a lot of noise before. It's all coming from angels worshiping around the throne of God, is it not? If you recall back in chapter 4, where the series of visions began, there were several uh, ranks or layers of angels that were surrounding the throne of God. And, and they're, they're praising God, shouting and singing loudly. And it said back in chapter 4 that their praise t- takes place day and night without ceasing. It's like this constant, ongoing symphony of praise from this huge angelic course, uh, chorus, but it ceases here, it stops. In John's vision, even the worshiping angels themselves shut up for a minute. They stop praising God and they wait with a thick, intense silence as the climactic finale to this drama is about to take place. Well, then what happens next in the silence? Next, John sees a picture of this angel with this incense-burning censer. It's like a a pan or a dish that they used to burn incense in. In fact, the imagery here is really very much rooted in the Old Testament, like so much of the book of Revelation is. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16, the annual day of atonement for the ancient Israelites. It only happened once a year as an annual event, and the high priest, the Jewish high priest, would have several rituals he was supposed to do. One of them is essentially being sort of mirrored or mimicked here. He would go into the, uh, the, the, the tabernacle after he'd done a whole bunch of other things to ritually purify himself, and he would offer incense to God. He would literally scoop some burning coals from the fire that was there and put it in this, uh, this censer, this dish that was designed uh, with a long handle or so on, so that he could hold it. And he would throw incense on the coals, and it would burn, and the sweet-smelling smoke would rise sort of as a praise to God. And that image is captured here. This angel goes to this altar that John sees in his vision, he throws smoke in the fire pan he throws incense on the fire but we're told that the incense either is or is mixed with the prayers of the saints what prayers from which saints that's a funny thing who's praying and who are the saints these aren't angels now these are people well we've only seen one group of saints so far in the book of revelation that has been praying to god and they happened when the fifth seal was broken back in chapter six Remember, we saw a picture of the souls of Christians who had been killed simply because they were Christians. They were murdered. They were unjustly killed simply because they were Christians by those who oppose the gospel. And they cried out for justice. They cried out for God to judge those who had committed such evil against them because those people killed them and got away with it. And so they're saying, God, how long will you hold off judgment? And back then, God told them, a while longer, a while longer. I'm not going to judge them now, but I will later. Well, now here we are at uh, the end of this seven seals, and these prayers for justice from the saints are gathered with fire, which is always sort of a symbol of judgment in the Bible and in Revelation, and thrown down on the earth, meaning what? I believe we're seeing a picture here of God saying, now's the time. This is the final judgment, the great climactic pause before God brings an end to the sin of a world that has marred His image for far too long. It's worth at this point we just said are at the end of a, a group of seven judgments that started all the way back in chapter 4 with John's vision of heaven. And for us, we took a break during Christmas for that, so we've, we've had a long time span. It's worth taking just a minute to step back then and say, what have we seen here so far in these chapters of Revelation? John's vision began in chapter 4 with this kind of picture, this symbolic imagery, which is what Revelation is full of, of heaven as a throne room, and God the Father sitting on the throne. And if you recall from chapter 4, Uh, No one can approach the throne. The angels are around it. There's this turbulent, roiling sea, this ocean in between John and, and God. He can't get to God. And God is pictured as holding a scroll. That scroll is his will. Uh, his purpose is for the world, to justly punish wrongdoers, to get rid of sin and evil, to bring about life and peace. It's like his will and testament for the world, but it's all wrapped up in the scroll and it's sealed, meaning the scroll is not open means God's will is not happening. God's will is not happening, and that's exactly how it often feels when bad things happen. Is that not still true today? That's the dramatic tension that that the visions of Revelation are setting up. It looks like God is not intervening in the world so often. And do we not still today, even in our modern world, hear people say the same thing? Why does God allow this or that? Maybe you recall, it was 15, 16 years ago now, but in the weeks following the terrorist attacks in the World Trade Center in 2001, so often the refrain was repeated, where was God? If God is there, why would he let people get away with such a destructive act of pure evil? This wasn't just being asked in churches and Bible schools. This was front page news on every newspaper across the country. People are wondering, if God is there, why is he letting this happen? If he's there, it sure doesn't look like he's involved. We see millions of people who starve in abject poverty. We see innocent people killed in terrorist attacks. We see innumerable numbers of people getting sick or even dying from diseases, AIDS, cancer. It's all too easy to say God isn't there. If he's there, his purposes are sealed up. Has God abandoned us? And that was the question facing the first century readers of Revelation. They were Christians, very much in the minority and in powerless positions in their societies, and they were often facing direct pain and persecution to varying degrees. Their question was where is God? Where is God in this? He's just, so surely He wants justice, but where is His justice? It's it's like it's sealed up. Is it never going to come to the earth? Have we been abandoned? But then as the vision unfolded, Jesus, who was pictured not as a conquering king, but as a sacrificial lamb, the great paradox of our Savior, is the only one who is worthy to approach the throne, take the scroll, and begin slitting the seals to unleash God's will, his punishment of evil, and the enforcement of justice. And that led us into chapter 6, where these first six seals were broken, unleashing God's judgments on a sinful and rebellious humanity. Now, they followed a pattern, which is going to become important later. The first uh, four seals are short and quick. We saw those a couple couple weeks ago. Seals number five and six came a little more slowly they were described at greater length and then just when you thought we would get to the end of it chapter seven we saw last Sunday was kind of a big interlude it was a pause before the seventh seal is broken instead we get this interlude consisting of two visions both of which had to do with what God is doing for his people and how he is caring for his people as he is in the midst of unleashing these judgments on sinful humanity And then now, in our passage this morning, we finally get the conclusion. The seventh seal is broken, the breathless anticipation for the final judgment, and God judges evil. Now, I've said a couple times this is the final judgment. Um, Many of you noticed we're only about a third of the way through the book of Revelation. So, how could this be the final judgment? We're nowhere near the end of the book. And admittedly, uh, there are a couple of different major ways that Christians have read the book of Revelation. I'm going to spend a ton of time on that here. We're actually talking about that some in our Harvest Wednesday class on the book of Revelation Wednesday night. But let me just point out a couple of things that I think help us all understand the way Revelation is put together and therefore how it kind of wants us to read it, if I could put it that way. What's being uh, said here? Just two things I want to point out this morning. First of all, In chapter 8, verse 5, we saw this uh, picture of of these kind of cosmic uh, signs. When the fire is thrown on the earth, there's peals of thunder, there's rumblings, there's flashes of lightning, there's an earthquake. This kind of language occurs repeatedly at regular intervals throughout the book of Revelation. This is the first time, but it follows a pattern. And I'll point it out more as we go, but it's worth taking just a moment to show you what I'm talking about. It occurs definitely again in these next two places, chapter 11, verses 15 and 19, and then again in chapter 16. Here's chapter 11, verse 15 of Revelation. This occurs at the end of the next series of seven judgments, the seven trumpets, and the same language occurs again at the end of the next series after that of judgments, this bowls of wrath that are poured out. Chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we get to the end of the next series. There's this announcement from heaven that it's over, and Jesus is coming to take over the world. He's going to establish his rule. And then look at verse 19. God's temple in heaven was opened, the Ark of the Covenant was seen, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Very similar language, although this one adds hail. It's like it's getting worse. And then one more. You jump ahead to chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. The end of the third and final series of seven judgments in this book. The seventh angel poured his bowl out into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. The judgments, fine. this is finished, this is it, this is the culmination. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Do you hear the same language over and over again? The declarations of finality and then the similar language. This is also not only language where these verses are sharing with one another, it's language that they share with the language of the Old Testament prophets over and over and over again the old testament prophets anticipated what they called the coming day of the lord that day at some point in the future where he will finally come and judge all evil and make all things right and make the world a good and beautiful and righteous place and so often when they talked about the day of the lord they talked about it as a day of great calamity and earthquakes and hail and fire and stars falling from the sky it's all imagery to say that god from heaven will finally come judge all evil And I think the book of Revelation is just picking that language up, and yet we see it repeating that language several times throughout. Meaning what? Meaning that the book of Revelation, in all likelihood, I believe, it's it's not put together and designed to be read from start to finish as one linear train of events. Um, The fancy word for it, if you like big words that Bible scholars use, is recapitulation. Okay? Okay? Basically, that just means that the book of Revelation kind of covers the same ground several different times from different angles, and it adds different details, but it's kind of covering the same ground. So rather than thinking of the story of Revelation from start to finish as a line, you might want to think of it more like a spiral, like it covers a whole series of events and then it comes back to the first series and goes further in. And then it covers them again, adding yet more and more and more. And so there is a progression, but it's kind of recovering much of the same ground over and over again. This is also suggested by the similar structure of the forthcoming seven, uh, sorry, of the seven seals with the forthcoming seven trumpets. I mentioned just a moment ago, last comment here on Structure. That the six, uh, or sorry, the seven seals were uh, narrated according to a specific pattern, and that's a pattern that is repeated exactly when we see the next series of judgments, which we're about to start here. These four, uh, sorry, these seven uh, trumpets judgments that are announced by a trumpet blast, and they follow the exact same pattern. The first four come very quickly. The fifth and the sixth are narrated at much greater length, much more slowly. There is a pause before the seventh an interlude where we get once again two different visions that I will suggest are about the same thing, how God preserves his people through the giving of judgments, and then finally the ending that we just looked at a moment ago in chapter 11 with the seventh trumpet blast. All of this sort of suggests that we're probably covering very similar ground from a different angle. I admit that's debatable, but I think that's really how the book of Revelation fits. If that raises questions for you, come Wednesday night because that's what we're going to talk about. For now, we're going to move on, because the way we read this book is important, but what we take out of it and how we put it into practice and what it speaks to us is really the primary issue. So let's go there now. We shift now from this first series of of seven seals that are, the seventh one's finally broken, that series is done, and what happens next is a whole new series Of visions that John receives once again consisting of seven judgments this time they're announced not by the breaking of a seal but by an angel who blows a trumpet blast if you're in Revelation chapter 8 verse 6 follow along with me now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe! woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow you thought those first four were bad <laughs> wait till you see what's coming next well you got to come back next week for that what do we make of these first four so much could be said let me zero in on two i think important observations that help us i think make sense of what god is getting at here for us First, the most obvious feature is that each one of these uh, judgments is announced by the blast of a trumpet. Why trumpets? What does that indicate? Generally speaking, in the ancient world, trumpets were used for a variety of things, but one of the most common usage was to uh, signal um, troop movements during a military conflict. An army would have its battle plan, and then they would spread out, and they didn't quite have radios yet. Uh, back in that day, to synchronize their watches and call in the attack. So when the troops started moving, usually the charge was sounded by the blast of a trumpet. And if an army was laying siege to a fortified city that had its walls built all around it, they might hit it from different sides, and they would use trumpet blasts to signal their attacks. Oftentimes, uh, this uh, language is also picked up by the Old Testament prophets and applied to the future day of the Lord. It is said to be signaled uh, by a trumpet blast. Uh, Many examples of that. I want to just read one for us very briefly. This is from the Old Testament prophet uh, Zephaniah in chapter 1. Let me just read a couple of verses here. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Sorry, um, 14 through 16. The great day of the Lord is near, and it is hastening fast, the Old Testament says. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter, as a mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. It is a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and the lofty battlements. There's one very clear example. You see what the prophet is doing there? He is saying, God one day will come to judge evil as if mankind sits behind the battlements and the fortified walls of his own pride and refuses to bend the knee to God. And he therefore conducts all sorts of evil because he believes he is in charge. And God will one day assail the battlements. He will lay siege to the fortified walls of human pride and bring about true justice on the earth. The imagery is battle imagery with trumpets. And I think that's what the book of Revelation is picking up here. The second interesting thing to say about these judgments is that these first four all have allusions to the uh, ten plagues that God instituted on the Egyptians back in Moses' day. And we all saw Charles Heston explain that to us once upon a time, Right? Virtually, as much debate and discussion as there is amongst Christians about how to interpret all the details of Revelation, virtually every Bible scholar recognizes this. These all are alluding to the judgments that took place back in the day of Pharaoh. The first trumpet uh, mirrors the plague uh, in the book of Exodus of hail and fire that fell from the sky on the Egyptians. The second and the third trumpets sort of mirror uh, the plague of the waters of the Nile that were turned to blood, although here a third of the ocean is turned to blood, and then the, the, the third trumpet, a third of the freshwater sources, rivers and springs, are turned to blood. And the fourth trumpet, the final one we're looking at this morning, mirrors the plague of darkness that was set upon Egypt in the middle of the day. So what do you make of all that? Well, when you put these two together, the sort of overall vibe, the the, the meaning starts to become pretty clear, right? Trumpet blast and battle cry, assailing the fortified walls of human pride. What was God doing back in the plagues when Moses was telling the Pharaoh, God says, let my people go, And which our elementary kids are learning about this morning, by the way, as I speak. If your kids are back there in their classes, ask them about it. let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, why? And then God sends a plague to show that he is really powerful. And and does Pharaoh say, oh my goodness, you're God. You're right. I give up. No, it just, it hardens his heart. It, It makes him more entrenched. He digs his heels in even harder to say, I will not yield because the walls and the battlements of his pride are high and they are thick. And I believe these judgments are to understand the same thing. These trumpets announce calamities, probably on the physical environment. That's certainly the imagery, maybe the reality too, that God sends on judgments on a humanity that is actively opposed to God in its own self-reliant arrogance. And as is the case with the seven seals and, and based on the fact that they follow the same pattern, I think these are best understood as things that happen again and again and again throughout human history rather than single individual events. The images John is seeing picture physical judgments that God sends on the earth throughout history as part of the curse of mankind's sin to show that he is just and to call people to repentance. Repentance. Many examples of this, even in our own recent history, but we don't often think of them as God's judgments, not in an enlightened, we would say, humanistic 21st century culture. You think a few years ago of the huge tsunami that ravaged the east coast of Japan, Uh, among other things, annihilating a nuclear reactor. And the Fukushima power plant is what got all of the press in the months and years after the, 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 the tsunami hit, appropriately so. But if you remember the images and the news uh, on, the, on the television news at the time, the, the devastation wrought by that tsunami was just unimaginable. How far inland the water went and how many 10, 15, 20,000 ton ships were thrown two, three miles inland. The sheer destructive force and the annihilation of property and life was so widespread it was catastrophic. And of course, a nuclear reactor built by the sea was inundated. A reactor, by the way, that had a seawall that was supposed to block tidal waves. I think... What the Bible is encouraging us to see here is that behind those events, can you not see the hand of judgment? And we say, wait a minute, we, we know where tidal waves come from. Tectonic plates rub against one another, and because they're moving, pressure builds up, and eventually they slip, they call that an earthquake, it sends shock waves through a liquid medium, water, it causes a tidal wave. We understand where tidal waves come from. Yes, all very true. And the reason the power plant was... Was, was damaged and, and, and ultimately had to be shut down and it caused so much devastation is that because the the builders thought they had engineered it for a tidal wave but they underestimated nature they just didn't do a good enough job and there are lessons to be learned in, in engineering a nuclear power plant safety from this event all true all true but you see what the bible is saying as true as all that is that's not the whole story Can we not see that behind these kinds of events is the hand of a God who says, you think you have mastered the world in which you live? Do you not see my power and that catastrophic things happen in the world in judgment? Not judgment against the Japanese people. This isn't judgment that happened to a specific group for a specific crime. These are catastrophes that happen in the world because the world is populated by a sinful race. That's actually suggested by the the repeated use of a third. I'm sure you noticed that, like 12 or 13 times. It says a third of this and a third of that and a third of this and a third of that, which does represent an escalation from the seal judgments, which were said to have affected a quarter of the people on the earth. Now we're up to a third, so it seems like things are getting worse here, but clearly not everybody is affected by all of these judgments, and yet they are pictured as judgments from a holy God against an unjust people. D.A. Carson uses the example of the Titanic at this point to illustrate what he thinks is going on here. I agree with him. We know that story too. The ship was built at the height of the British Empire, world dominance, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And just like so many kings and leaders and governments who have taken over throughout history vast swaths of the known world, the the British Empire was fueled pride in the hearts of its citizens, and they stood behind the battlements of their pride. The sun never sets on our empire. Our empire is a worldwide empire. And maritime power was a big part of what led the British to such worldwide dominance. They were very comfortable with their ability to rule the seas. And so they built a ship that was said to be unsinkable. With the prowess of our engineering and our multiple compartments, this thing could sustain multiple hull breaches and not sink. And so, what happens? On its maiden voyage, it goes down like a rock. Well, that's because the engineering, as good as it was in that day, certainly wasn't anywhere near as good as it is now. There should have been more lifeboats, there should have been better design. All true. You could go back and look at a series of human choices. The, the captain was, was um, uh, going too fast. There was fog. There was icebergs in the area. If there had been better protocols, uh, more wise and prudent safety choices, that disaster could have been totally averted. It's all true. But you see what the Bible is saying? Can you not see somewhere behind all of this the hand of God judging the battlements of human pride? Not judgment against the passengers on that boat. They weren't any worse than anybody else. But we live in a world where these things happen, and the Bible encourages us to see them as judgments from the hand of God against the battlements of self-reliant human pride. What are we supposed to take away from this? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes people not like the book of Revelation, right? You come in here and you read all of this just vivid pictures of like this awful stuff. Who wants to read that? (laughs) What are we supposed to take away? In the time we have left, I'd like to suggest at least three things. There's probably lots of things we should take away. But let me suggest three. First, there is an exhortation here, there's a warning, and there is a great encouragement, believe it or not. Here's the exhortation, an urging. The Bible is urging us not to let our faith become either eradicated, destroyed, or, as so often happens in the modern day, privatized. Here's what I mean. In, in America today, we've, we've alluded to this, we tend to believe that if we have found uh, the natural causes behind an event, we have found the total causes of that event. That's just an assumption, it it is so baked into our way of thinking, we almost never even think about it, it just seems obvious to us. We just assume that that's true. The Titanic sank because of a lack of safety protocols. Uh, Disease spreads because of the way that viruses and bacteria replicate themselves at a cellular level. We can measure all of this, we can see it oftentimes uh, under microscopes. Uh, Tsunamis happen because tectonic plates shift. We have evidence, ample evidence of that, all true but our assumption is if we have found a natural cause behind something, we have found the total cause behind it. Consequently, we think that either God is not there at all, because we just don't need God, air quotes, the way that past generations did to explain what's going on around us. Or, as is often the case, we privatize our faith. And for Christians who privatize their faith, that's that's basically saying, I'm not going to abandon my belief in the sovereignty of God in the midst of all of this, but I'm going to choose to live with my, my faith and my belief in God as something that's just personal and private for me. I'll go to church on Sunday, and I'll talk to other Christians happily who agree with me, but when I leave Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, go to work, the world I live in has nothing to do with God. That's just my private, personal, religious belief. But the real world operates without God's influence. All of these natural causes are true so far as they go, but the Bible is urging us to understand that God is behind them all. And friends, let me go back to something we said earlier on in this study. I want to bring it back to the surface here because it's so relevant. Why does the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature it's called, why does it use so much symbolic imagery? I mean, if God wanted to say something, why didn't you just say it? And my response back at the beginning of this series was twofold. First of all, he does just say it. It's called the Book of Romans. Okay, so there are parts of the Bible where he just explains what he means very plainly. But then you got this other stuff like Revelation, where it's all communicated with these bizarre images, and sometimes they're a little hard. To, most of the time, it's easy to follow what's going on. Sometimes they're a little hard to understand. Why would he do that? And what we suggested back then has huge relevance now. We suggested that the reason God does it is because he does not only want to engage our minds the way prose does, nor does he only want to engage our emotions the way that poetry does. And there is poetry in the Bible as well as prose. But God also wants to engage the imagination. And that's what vivid symbolic imagery does. This is the very reason people don't like Revelation. It's not just like strange, it's scary. It's weird. It makes you go, wow, you can't read it. You can't help but to react positively or negatively. Man, it fuels the imagination. It produces a reaction. I believe that's exactly what God is after. Why would he want to do that? This is a great example of why. Because he's wanting us to see that the basic, visible, concrete things in front of us are not the only things that are there. There are natural causes of lots of catastrophes, but there is also a sovereign God who sometimes is using those natural causes to judge a sinful world. We can't always pin down when or why, but he tells us he's doing it. The imagination is able to see what is in front of us and see beyond what is in front of us. It's part of the way God reveals himself to us. So don't let your faith become minimized or privatized. Secondly, this is the warning and it's pretty obvious. God will not be mocked. Even though it looks like he's allowing himself to be mocked for a long time. That was the struggle of the original readers of this book, right? We're Christians. We're following you, God. We're getting persecuted. It doesn't look like you're doing anything about it. They're saying, God, this is making you look bad. You're letting injustice reign upon your people, and everybody assumes that if you were there, you would stop it, and you're not stopping it, so you look unjust. God, why are you letting yourself be mocked? In these visions of judgment, God is telling the readers of the Bible, I am not as idle as you think I am. Yes, it's true. Final judgment is not yet. Yes, it is true that bad people get away with a lot of bad things for a while in this world. And that is because he is deliberately holding back final judgment out of mercy. We'll get there in just a second. But even then, Revelation tells us that God is not as idle as he appears to be. He is sending preliminary judgments on sinful humanity even now to provoke people into repentance. Unfortunately, it more often seems to have the effect that it had on the ancient pharaoh to merely harden people's hearts all that much more and increase their determination to build the battlements of self-reliant pride even higher so that we will not have to yield to the God whose authority we have spurned. But that leads us to the great encouragement. Because in the Bible, God's judgment is always always mixed with mercy that's why his judgment seems so incomplete and it is incomplete even if you take the bible at face value that all humanity deserves judgment these visions are saying that only a portion of the earth is affected by any one of these things at any time he's clearly not judging everybody and we're to see that as a mercy His judgment in this life is incomplete. It will be complete one day. The Bible makes no bones about that. But for now, it is incomplete because he is creating space for people to find life in Christ. You say, okay, that's true. That's elsewhere in the Bible, but that's not in here. I see nothing in Revelation but judgment. Really? Is that all we've seen in Revelation? Only judgment? Let me ask you, who is the one... Who was breaking those seals that institute God's judgment? Who is the one that is telling these angels to blow those trumpets and execute God's judgment? Remember back in chapter 5? It's Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy to come to the throne of God and execute God the Father's will. But was Jesus pictured as a mighty, powerful, military-conquering king in chapter 5? Was he pictured the way he was announced? He was announced as the ruling lion of the universe, a powerful beast, the king of the beasts. But when John turned to look at the one who was announced as a lion, what did he see? He saw a lamb. Not just a lamb, a sheep, a little weak and meek creature, but a lamb that had been killed a lamb with its throat cut, a lamb with blood stains on its wool, its own blood. You see, the one who sends judgment on the world in his justice is the exact same God who bore judgment for the world in his mercy. That's the message of Revelation. That's the message of the whole Bible. The God who will bring about complete justice on all who refuse to repent is the one who absorbed the consequences of sin, even though he had no sin, in order to create space for you and I to lay down our arms to come out from behind the battlements that we construct. Every time he attacks those battlements and cracks those walls, it is a mercy. It's his way of saying these will not stand. Come out from behind these walls lest you perish. I love you enough to invite you home. And he says to every person who comes out from behind the battlements of their own sinful pride, they will find mercy and grace and eternal life in Christ forever so the Bible beckons every one of us to come before Jesus, the universe's king, who is a slain sacrificial lamb. That is a kindness of God that you and I might find hope. Friends, we're about to enter into our uh, semi-monthly celebration of the Lord's Supper of communion. Twice a month, we gather together as a church and we take the bread and we drink from the cup which Jesus told his um, followers to do regularly in remembrance of him.